and all of a sudden were hit by COVID. Uh, it was, I think, 13 March. Um, we just shut down all of our offices here in the States, and Steve Potter, the CEO, and I were actually driving out of New York City together. Um, unbeknownst to us, we both had contracted uh, COVID-19 in the city. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, my fellow Americans, and welcome to another episode of the Inspired Service Podcast. You might recognize that I am not Noah Scheinbaum. I'm, in fact, Nicholas Kiong, a new voice not only to this podcast, but also to USCC. I'm the new producer and editor of this podcast, and now first-time host. As well as the voice, today's format has changed just a little. You will not only hear from one person, but six. They consist of the members that have teamed up with USCC from Rogers Bernston to fight COVID-19. Today, I will lead you through their collaboration and journey over the past seven months. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes. The journey that Audrey's has taken with USCC started with a simple connection between USCC co-founder Sammy Swangu and Chief Operating Officer of Audrey's, Ken and Kincaid. Yeah, so Sammy Swangu, one of the co-founders and I, had uh, worked together, trained together, served together um, when we were both both in the government years ago, and have remained in you know in, uh, in occasional contact ever since as we entered the private sector and explored the uh, the different. Um, uh, avenues that we've gone, and you know, I was well aware of he and Noah uh, standing up the USCC uh, Civilian Corps a couple of years ago, and I've kind of just kept kept tabs on it and been supportive as best I can as to, to what they're doing. But there was a lot of questions asked about what Audrey's could actually do. What did they have in their arsenal to help USCC tackle COVID? That was a question Kennan and his CEO Steve Potter had to answer together. He and I were scratching our heads as to, as to how we could help and kind of tried to look into the future a little bit and saw there was likely going to be um, uh, a supply and demand issue with, with the hospital systems, just seeing what had already happened in New York. And we uh, stared into self and into business and, and thought, what could we do to help with that? You know, as a, as a search firm, we've got some amazing uh, people and an AI capability that's really focused on the uh, the, the high end of executive search, um, but that capability is kind of agnostic to the data and the challenge. So we um, challenged ourselves to see if we could go find, um, as I originally kind of termed it, the, the ghost fleet, if you will, which is recent retirees who have the right skill sets that go back into hospitals. But more broadly than that, where are those people um, like we have in our in our firm who former doctors um, or nurses that have changed professions? But still have those requisite skills to, you know, go uh, go put their uniforms back on, for lack of better better pun, um, and get back in the fight. So we um, agreed that this is a route we we're going to go and do it in a, in, a, in a pro bono spirit of volunteerism kind of way. Uh, and in order to do that, I knew we needed you know the right partner so that we just weren't a company trying to go and solve this problem. So. I reached out to Sammy and, and Noah and 
uh, we agree this was this was going to be worth the effort and the energy, and and that begun what uh, feels like years of work together, only being months. But we went on to to partner with New York, then New Jersey, and on to Louisiana, and I think uh, over to California, and eventually Alaska, to help um, help solve some of these enduring, uh, very very present human capital problems. Um, that were caused by by the the rise in these cases, and I think that's then evolved into trying to think through of how do we have a persistent capability to ensure that we're not scrambling to think about getting humans to the with the right skills to the point of need quickly. And it uniquely, I think, fits under the U.S. Civilian Corps mission, and uh, and has been and it's the capability that we offered as a business was. Um, taking what we do every day and pivoting that, you know, to service. And obviously we couldn't do that forever, but I think what's been neat about the current state we're in now is the U.S. Civilian Corps has taken some of that capability and they'll develop that into its own abilities, still with the support of us as a firm, but, and, you know, kind of be able to stand on their own. And as we probably pull back a little bit from it, but continue to enable where we can. But tackling COVID wasn't easy especially when you had two separate entities working together. But John Barney, one of the Audgers partners that worked in the coalition between USCC and Audgers, explained that with a group like this, it wasn't easy to mesh, and it wasn't easy to solve problems. But they put their heart into this project. And that's what mattered, that they cared, that they wanted to do the right thing. So what's funny about all this is, you know, with, the, with COVID response, it's, it's been a complete... <laughs> the classic uh, building the plane while flying it. So the, the first part was just we thought that there was a way we could be helpful. I mean, and, and that was it. Uh, we had some notional ideas, but it really wasn't defined. And we've kind of let things, you know, we've kind of helped where, we've, where we think we've can, we, we could. So ultimately what we've done is we've provided you know, essentially healthcare capacity to a number of different states. So, so what that means is when you see the news of, you know, increased hospitalizations in different states, you know, you need different medical professionals to kind of support that. And the, the challenge has been in a lot of states, there just, there haven't been enough of the right medical professionals. Um, and that's in cases like New York, New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts, where, all of a sudden the cases have really gone up and they just haven't had the right number of um, health professionals. So what we've done is essentially we've provided healthcare capacity via health professionals to a lot of different states. It wasn't a one-person job. It was a group effort and there weren't leaders or followers. They all helped in different ways, trying to offer their expertise when each of them could. It was about finding who had the right answer to any given problem. Yeah, so I, I think uh, on all this, it's it not it hasn't been like one person with a specific like job. Like this has been very much like an organic effort. In my case, like like a number of the other team members, you know, I've, I've got different relationships across the government. Um, I think we've helped kind of build out like what the the model looks like to respond to different states. You know, I've helped facilitate different you know, discussions we've done with. This could be private sector, public sector. You know, what's what's been interesting about it is every I don't know how much Noah's told you, but you know, really the last three months we we've been having like morning calls at like eight a.m. 
with members of the team. So that's been Noah. Um, and then from our side, it's Kevin Kincaid, myself, uh, Maureen Ryan. Um, our CEO, Steve Potter, has been on some. Um, and then we have our kind of head of head of research, Javier O'Neill, has been on as well. So basically what we've been doing is we're kind of responding to like what we're seeing from different states. So in the case of New York, New York was the first state that things got really out of control. So what we helped them do, and then in different states, is we just identify whether that's nurses, certain uh, healthcare professionals by our database, and then contact them, recruit them, and kind of hand them off to the different states. And so the total of about 11,000 people around different states. So what's been interesting, there really hasn't been like a person like, here's your job. It's been more like a team that's just come together and said, all right, you do, you do X, then somebody else does Y, then the next day it may change. Because it's been a, an undefined problem, so you just have to kind of figure it out. You know, we, we all just kind of jumped in into this, and it just kind of reflects how, like, undefined and unprecedented the challenge was. Like, to give you the true, like, the timing of all this, I was at my, my girlfriend's house on a Sunday night, and Ken and Kincaid, our COO, calls me at, like, 8.30, and he's like, man, this, this COVID stuff, <laughs> this is getting real. <laughs> is there a way we could be helpful? And I was like... Yeah, you know, and then he talked to, uh, you'll talk to Maureen Ryan, who's our our healthcare practice lead. And the three of us are like, yeah, you know, we, you know, we know how to recruit people and we have this great database and artificial intelligence tools and we want to help. You know, we, I think we could do something. So, you know, better, let's kind of jump in and figure out how we can be helpful and, as opposed to just sitting on the sidelines. The team included around 10 people from both USCC and Audgers, but much of the focus was on the recruiting abilities the Audgers system provided. The technology and data experts from Audgers worked really hard on converting a system away from its intended use. That job was given to Valeria Escamilla and Javier O'Neill. Um, yeah, so I mean, we went into, you know, our firm, you know, we went into lockdown in mid-March and you know, speaking with Kenny Kincaid, our uh, COO, and, and Steve Potter, our CEO, they were in touch with the U.S. Civilian Corps and starting to build up a response, starting to strategize of, you know, how we could participate in this, you know, obvious national emergency at the time. So Val and I were talking, like, we, you know, run a lot of this kind of big data applications internally, you know, towards a pretty different object around recruiting and, and some stuff like that. But, you know, I think we started to talk in mid-March, late March, saying, well, why don't we redirect, you know, these resources towards the COVID response, right? And, you know, we deal with some pretty large data sets that would allow us to effectively, like, query entire healthcare population of the U.S. You know, every that's about 10, 12 million people that we've licensed the data set around. So we started to just kind of brainstorm saying, well, you know, we could query into this around different skills and, and different backgrounds that, you know, are much needed, you know. And at the same time, we started to just, you know, very, very rapidly start to build out some applications around this. And by that I mean, you know, a pretty intricate system where we would query this data set, hand certain numbers off to an SMS application, 
that we had kind of struck up a partnership with around being able to do such a high volume SMS messaging without kind of getting a, a free pass from the carriers in a sense because this was around you know, a national crisis. So we kind of you know decided to brainstorm and work out a way where we could quickly find a very high volume number of people, message them, you know, get certain information from them around you know their interest in, in participating in a response or if they would if they could work in a telemedicine context or if they would you know, work in the emergency center. And this survey got more intricate, but we just found in this climate, too, people were very responsive, and we could really you know, hit um, hundreds of thousands of people and, and draw a lot of engagement. And that's how we started to push people into health systems for a number of states pretty rapidly. But that was just the beginning. They had to collect thousands of names of healthcare professionals around the country. But when handling large amounts of numbers like that, it wasn't so easy to sort them with such little time that COVID gave them. So, um, you know, some setbacks were just the need that we had to move at and, you know, the decisions that we had to make. We couldn't second guess. So we had to, there was a lot of late nights, early mornings, you know, just brainstorming, looking at different options, making decisions and moving the project along. Once we had the data database and we could query it, you know, the new challenge was integrating the SMS platform and the email platform with the data, making sure that we were connecting the sources so that we were messaging the right people and that the message was, you know, within the character limit or that the link linked properly to, um, you know, different forums or different state websites depending on the campaign that we were working on. We started with New York and shortly after uh, moved on to New Jersey, California, Louisiana. And so each message, each text message and email had its own content and its own links and landing pages. So it was just really important for us to make sure that everything was linked properly and everything worked um, while staying within that character limit for the messages or you know, making sure that the email would go through and not go directly into someone's spam folder. Once they finished building the system, it was time to test it. Luckily, the test was successful, relatively easy, and they received over 10,000 replies. But was that too many to deal with at once? No, it was immediate. So, you know, one of the campaigns, I think, was we launched at 5 p.m., and by 5.01, we had responses coming in. Um, the text messages was, of course, the, the fastest turnaround for responses. And, um, you know, even if people weren't able to volunteer or work, they a lot still responded and, um, you know, said, not interested at this time. We had a lot of responses where, you know, they said, I wish I could, but I'm recovering from COVID or I... I'm high risk, so I can't, but I'm willing to help with telemedicine. Um, you know, we had one response where someone said, please send help to this New York ER hospital. It's hell here. Um, so we had a lot of responses. Um, you know, some were straightforward and some were, they gave us a lot of context and really asked for, you know, help in certain areas or they let us know, I wish we could, but this is why I can't. But this is what I can do. 
the the way that the responses were supposed to work was, you know, reply with one if you can help in New York City. Reply with two if you're not in New York, but you can help in your local, you know, healthcare providers. Or reply with three with telemedicine. Or if you're not available, reply with one. So it was supposed to be easy to sort through those responses based on just uh, the number response. But once people started responding with text and not just that number, um, it was all manual. So we had to manually sort those responses and, you know, route them to the proper place. Sometimes we just have to resend them the link and let them know, thank you so much for offering, you know, telemedicine. Here's the link for you to sign up so we can follow up with you later and, you know, send you to the proper channel. And they dealt with those responses, whether it was systematically or through personally sitting, sifting through the data, it happened. But it wasn't seamless. It was merely weeks, if not days, to get this project running. There was a lot of pressure on Val and Javier. It never felt like it was moving fast enough, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Val, but yeah. I mean, it, you always feel behind, naturally. And Yeah, and- so like when we got the first 100 responses, uh, it was exciting, right? And it was a relief that we saw responses coming in and people engaging, but then suddenly a hundred felt like nothing. And, you know, then we had a thousand responses and it was like, well, that's great, but we need 10,000. And so, yeah, it was motivating to have that immediate engagement and to see those numbers growing, but it was tough to wake up every day and news and see, well, you know, now we knew New York really needed help, but then Texas was just, you know, the numbers were skyrocketing and we were trying to get in touch with the Texas governors or, you know, just whoever we could get in touch with to offer, you know, our help, um, California. So, yeah, it, it was it was every day was different. Every day was challenging, but at the same time, I think every day we felt accomplished, and we knew that we were doing what we could. We were working, you know, late nights and giving it all we all we had. I mean, it was it was great personally to see. You know, you have an immediate effect. Like we're finding healthcare workers, we're moving them into the system. People end up somewhere. They are saving lives, you know, and there was certainly that for me, like that driving motivation, like that this has like a real immediate effect. And, um, and that was, you know, very much our internal messaging at Audrey's, you know, especially with Ken and Steve, it was like, hey, let's direct all firm resources at this. This is a national crisis and let's do like everything we can. And so the project was up and running. Names and data were being collected, but how were they getting to the right places? Much of that was placed on Maureen Ryan, the healthcare recruitment head for Audrey's Bernstein. She was tasked with connecting the pieces, working between the healthcare system and the USCC Audrey's task force. She was the glue that seemed to keep everything together. You know, it was pretty ad hoc. Um, as a healthcare person, I knew I had the relationship, so. You know, we would talk about how can we be helpful. And so, you know, our government relations person figured out how to make some contacts with the governor's office, with the person who was charged with workforce resources. We worked with her to coordinate that. We, we basically cast a wide net to any contacts we could make to see how we could be helpful. 
We had a contact into Senator Schumer's office, his expert on health care. We had the contact with the governor's office, who worked very closely with us, wanted us to be able to help be a resource. And we worked directly with the health system CEOs. They knew me. Um, and so I knew if they you know, were in a crunch that we could come back to either our coalition that we formed with MITRE to help identify um, you know, masks and other things that might be needed. And in addition to that, we um, made ourselves available if they needed resources from a talent standpoint. However, quickly it became apparent that there was a lot of bureaucracy to sift through. There weren't clear lines of connections. Every system, state, and person was different. Um, every state government is so completely different from the next one. And the way that public health is managed in each state is vastly different. There are a lot of... Um, there's no consistent structure in how the state responded to pandemic. Each state responded to the pandemic. So in some states, and I think Washington State is an example of this, what we learned is that there is a public health department for the state. Then there are public health departments for some large cities or counties. And many times these organizations overlap. And none of these organizations outside of maybe the H1N1 flu a couple of years ago were really prepared to take this on. They, again, they were in uncharted waters too. They lost a lot of critical time in February and early March for testing. And as they were trying to get access to equipment that could protect their frontline workers, they were also often... Over, you know, there were redundancies. There were a lot of inefficiencies because no one had had time to plan for it. So you might have a city public health department trying to get protective gear for the same organization that the state Department of Health was trying to get protective gear for. So there were a lot. Of, there was a lot of overlap too. It was surprising. Now, to many healthcare experts, it would not be a surprise. Um, I think we all knew that it was probably an under-resourced area, in, you know, public health. And we've, they've, they've, for a couple of years now, have seen a decrease in a lot of their funding and their support. But even if we had a highly functioning health department, I still think we would have been not quite prepared for the scope of what we, what we found ourselves dealing with as a country. But from these problems, trying to group opportunity for the task force. These communication barriers only proved their work to bring a reserve corps to healthcare even more important. I will say that one of the things that we realized as a group, as we were kind of walking through this, and our group was comprised, you know, of military, former military, healthcare, you know, IT folks, um, strategy people, was what an opportunity there was for some sort of a, I'll say, healthcare national guard which we thought was an opportunity, was that you would have, um, you know, one state having a big hotspot and other states hadn't, you know, they were okay. So we realized that there was an opportunity where you might be able to shift people and have more flexibility in how you deploy your workforce, you know? And maybe it's people who, you know, have, have debt, right, from nursing school, medical school. But we mm -hmm. saw this as a real opportunity that, you know, if they needed to be called up, you would have that set up already. You would already know that they were licensed. You would already know that, you know, they um, 
what their qualifications were, that they were already on a payroll of some sort. So we did, we did see, you know, what we believe is an opportunity to be able to establish something like this at the national level that really hasn't been established to the way that it could. From there, they could focus on the future and what was ahead for their system in the wider world and country. Well, that's a great question. And I think the direction that we're heading with that is really working with, again, another partner that we met who's developed this volunteer database that is pretty user-friendly that could be um, offered to people throughout the country. So it would be a mutually beneficial database for people who wanted to volunteer and for people who needed volunteers, even if they're paid. Uh, and so we're working with uh, the group that's developing that platform today. We just had them um, connect with uh, uh, an executive from a large health system to get their feedback, and we're continuing to refine that so that it really is a tool and a resource that people could use very simply all around the country. You know, being able to volunteer in some ways ought to be as easy as calling an Uber. As much as this story is about the work Audris has done with the health system and the government, the heart of it is that the government, community, and people have struggled to fight this virus. And that fight was made personal to both Ken and Kincaid and Steve Potter when they contracted it in March. Steve Potter took me through how sobering that journey was. Every night on the news, they're, they're piling coffins into you know, Hearts Island out there on the Potter's Field out there. And it was very, very sobering, I must say. I mean, it's, you know, you feel like shit. You don't really know what's going on in your body. And, um, you know, the news is full of people dying of this. Uh, and they're all over 60. Well, I'm over 60. You know, I have bronco, I get bronchitis very easily. And so, yeah, it was, it was mentally extremely draining, more than it was physically, actually. It wasn't. There was no one day that was worse than that was equal to or worse than a bad flu, but it went on for a lot longer. And mentally, you're, it was very hard to not get your head to go places you didn't want it to go. Finally, I had to stop watching the news because the news was all about. Because you have to remember back then, New York was the first badly hit part of the country where, you know, literally bodies were piling up in emergency rooms and you know, FedEx. Uh, uh, you know, refrigerator trucks were just stacked like they were stacked like cordwood, and that's what was on the news every night because America was shocked and it's like, holy shit, this thing is real. And you know, there's there I am right at the beginning of it. I mean, I literally probably caught this thing in, in early March or, or, or mid March, and uh, so yeah, it was. It, it is personal. It was. It was. Um, as I said, it was pretty. It was pretty. Uh, draining. It was emotional because there wasn't enough um, there wasn't enough data at that time. So what 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 you know? I remember very distinctly being about six or seven days into it, and I turn on the news and someone says, you know, it's a funny disease. Somewhere around day nine is when people really have trouble breathing and they go to the hospital and they're dead three days later. Uh, day nine. Okay. Well, I'm about day eight. And so you're going, holy shit. You have a little panic attack to try to get through that one more day, and you realize the next day, okay, I'm, I'm no worse, and life goes on. I go up to my desk and work and, and go to bed at night and, you know, be have difficulty breathing, but not badly. 
So I never got it. I never got really walloped by it. But my my mental state was a challenge. It was a challenge to stay positive and, and just say, you know, this thing's gonna walk by me, and it did. But um, you know, I'd be less than honest if I didn't say there were a few times when when you just sat there and said, God, you know, this really sucks. I I hope it's not gonna be me. For Steve, the national response was saddening. Whether it was the fight against masks or the misinformation being spread, he reiterated the importance of many of these CDC measures. Well, I, I think it's, I mean, personally, and it's a personal opinion, but I think it's immensely selfish of people and, and, and stupid. I mean, it's just plain stupid. I mean, if all America wore a mask for two weeks, this thing would probably go away. And yet you get the kids out there and they're doing their, you know, and they're not the ones that are dying of it. It's their grandparents and their parents and their people with pre-existing conditions, you know, leukemia survivors, people like that that are that are dying of it. And I think it's immensely selfish. I mean, I'm in New York. New York did a pretty good job of camping it down, but I'm you know, on the street today and there's a bunch of people without masks. And I'm just shaking my head. I don't, I don't get it. I really don't get it. There's no huge amount of evidence that, that positive or negative, that the antibodies, because I have tested positive to the antibodies, but there's no assurance that that's going to, you know, that they don't fade, right? So I don't want to get it again. Um, and I find the people that don't wear masks just to be very selfish. Overall, this pandemic, the fight that he has initiated against COVID has been humbling. Steve has started to recognize the moments he will no longer take for granted, whether it's hugs, restaurants, or just dinner in general. The things we took for granted, you know, are, are just the simple things, you know. Like I've been to Washington a couple times since COVID hit. And you go in a hotel and, you know, the bar isn't open, right? You can't go downstairs and have dinner and read a book. Um, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, I had, I, it's all room service. And then... On top of that, there's no minibar, and on top of that, they gave you your your food with uh, paper plates and plastic forks. So I'm like, wow, this is a four-star hotel. This is a pretty unpleasant experience. This is very utilitarian. Now, I get why they did it, and I would have done it too. No, you know, nobody's uh, dining pleasure should, should take precedence over safety. But, um, but you know, you, I will never take anything for granted again, I don't think. <laughs> particularly the little things that have to do with hospitality, leisure, and travel. Going out to a nice dinner with your wife was not a luxury, you know, nine months ago. It was, it was something that people did from time to time, and it was fun. But now it's, my God, I mean, when was the last time we all did that, right? So, uh, you know, traveling is now about renting, a, renting an RV and hitting the road. You know, people don't, aren't doing the things that they wanted to do going going abroad and all that. So I think once the vaccine hits, and I think and I think it's inevitable it will, then I think we'll see a return to normalcy. And it's, it's exciting. We got another six months to get through, but you know we're going to with with civilian corps, we're going to try to you know do work hard to kill the second wave, and then you know get on to uh, thinking more futuristically about how we don't don't ever come back to this place. But the closeness to this situation gave the group more and more energy to fight this virus. It was and is a lot of extra work for them. But ultimately, it was an extremely rewarding process. 
yeah, it gave us a lot of energy. We were all willing to commit the extra time, and it was extra time. And um, and it was very satisfying to feel like, you know, we're not totally helpless. We're going to make a difference. And I remember H.R. McMaster's talking about, you know, how this was going to be a long fight and a long haul, but that, you know, Americans, you know, they rally, and, and we don't let things like this defeat us as a country. And I remember taking a lot of heart from that, and it was very, very personal at that point with me. But sadly, the work this task force has put in over the past seven months isn't over. Thanks, Nick. That's exactly right. Hi, folks. This is Noah. And while the COVID-19 pandemic is still not over, I hope you take heart in hearing how our fellow Americans are rising to meet this challenge. There is no shortage of generosity, no lack of talent, and no absence of will in the American people. The spirit of service is alive and well among us, and not only will it help us get through this latest trial, it will also help us persevere through this trying election cycle, no matter who you are voting for. For now, thank you for listening, and please join us next time for more inspired service. For more episodes of the Inspired Service podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.